With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast. Back in Indianapolis, I'm Ryan Marine. John DeGeese is back in Chicago. He was out in Monterey at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. That's where the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship was in action last weekend. We'll be diving into that here shortly. Uh, we also have a lot of news to talk about on the program this week. A couple of questions from listeners as well, and a brief look ahead at what's to come this upcoming weekend. But we'll start with the racing out there uh, in California, John, with uh, WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca playing host to IMSA once again. And it was a big weekend for the Wayne Taylor racing duo of Ricky Taylor and Philippe Albuquerque, who were able to pick up the win and in so doing, had that points lead, which had come down somewhat over the previous two races, thanks to a, a nice strong run recently from the Action Express car. But uh, at least here at WeatherTech Raceway, they were able to hold serve and actually extend that lead once again. Yeah, um, going into the weekend, I think we all thought the Eckers were going to be strong, and, and that proved to be the case with both the, the number 10 Wayne Taylor car and the Meyer Schenk entry. Um, sweeping the front row and qualifying Philippe Albuquerque taking pole and um, really being the dominant force. It was a bit of a strange race again because of an alternative strategy by the Meyer Schenk car opting for a two-stop race. Um, Olivier Pla and Dane Cameron led a good chunk of the race just because of that strategy, but ultimately it didn't bear any fruit at the end um, with Pla having to conserve fuel in his final stint that dropped him down to a fourth place finish. Um, a real disappointing outcome, I think, again, for that team after sort of coming up short for the second race in a row on strategy. But um, when it comes down to Wayne Taylor racing, they were really on it all day and they overcame issues of their own uh, um, in, in the, with the car, uh, with the brake ducts that were overheating. Um, basically, debris were in the, in the rear brake ducts and um, overheated the rear tires and um, made for a really, really challenging stint, second stint for Philippe Albuquerque. And uh, he uh, told us post-race that it was, he thought the race was over for them um, because of the issue. And um, luckily, uh, the, during their next stop, they were able to clear the debris and, and, and get the car on its way for Ricky to get in the, in the car, and it was all basically fixed. So um, the, the Wayne Taylor team continues to impress me, just A, for their sheer speed and performance all the year, and just showing how they've really been in a class of their own, especially when comparing themselves to the other Acura in the field. Um, and, and that's no disrespect to the MSR team. They've been, they're a strong team and they, they've had multiple championships in IMSA before. So it's just shows how dominant I think the WTR guys have been this year. And, um, they really put on a show on Sunday. And to be fair, a late yellow, and we're having a much different conversation. I, I think it was Ricky Taylor in one of the articles you put out post-race was saying that they weren't paying too much attention to the Shank car because the strategies were so divergent, and they kind of had figured out on the Wayne Taylor racing pit box that if that late yellow that, that Meyer Shank was hoping for had come, then everyone else would be playing for second. And so, similar to what we saw at Road America, had yellows come down differently or just materialized late in the race, we might be talking in slightly different terms about the way MSR 
has uh, has been performing. Although I think it is worth noting, this is becoming a bit of a trend and, and a bit of a frustrating one, I'm sure, internally for that team because it extends beyond just what we're seeing in IMSA with some strategy issues uh, on the IndyCar side too. Uh, I'm curious what you make of the performance of that team. I mean, clearly they were strong, front row and qualifying, electing to go completely different from everyone else on strategy despite the strong pace early. Um, and, and we've seen this now a couple of times. Is this just a case of them not getting the lucky break they're looking for, or do they need to look themselves in the mirror a little bit? Yeah, it was an interesting one because they were really nowhere on Friday. I think they were three, like about almost two seconds off the pace. Um, they were slower than the LMP2 pace setter on, on, on Friday's practice session, and everybody was sort of scratching their heads thinking, what was wrong with the the, the car or what's what's going on then all of a sudden they found the pace on saturday and, and qualified in the front row and and to both drivers credits i think dane and olivier drove very well um lap time wise they were right in it and if they had had a typical three-stop race i think they would have been there right there with the 10 car they quite frankly i think the 10 probably still upped them you know still had an edge on them overall but they would have been certainly on the podium, if not finishing second. So it, it is a strange one. You know, I, I like teams that, that make bold calls that, that, that try to go outside the box and try to, you know, make different, take some risks and, 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 and that could re- come back and, and reward you. But when that doesn't happen, you know, we've seen this before, I think in the early years of the Mazda program, when they were trying to get their, their first couple wins under the belt and, and they had similar issues and ultimately never really paid off by having alternative strategies in the race. So especially when you sort of make that call so early in the running, you know, we had a really uh, early full course yellow um, due to an accident from two GT Daytona cars. And I think that's when the call was made there to go for a two-stop race. And knowing how big, knowing how much tire degradation plays into the things at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca, you're not just talking about conserving fuel, you're talking about conserving tires. And that's almost a bigger part. And I think that's where things may have not been the maybe the smartest call there to do a two-stop race at a track like this if it if we were talking about maybe another track even like road america it might have been played out a little different and you raised a good point too ryan and that if we had a late race yellow things could have been different but then again um pla would have been on much older tires than than ricky so i, I think it still would have been in the tens favor but who knows you know we're just saying a bunch of what ifs um it was still an interesting race for sure and i I think it goes to show you that you know everybody plays the game differently and and sometimes things happen sometimes things don't yeah exactly and there might not have been a ton of drama late in the race as far as the overall win was concerned but the fight for second was a fierce one and it had championship implications uh, because it involved the Action Express car, which was running second at the time. And uh, great battle at the end, Ringer Vanderzanda. Something about Ringer and this track and late race drama, John. We've seen yeah. it a few times before, but some bold and maybe at least Felipe Nasser would say overly aggressive maneuvers to claw away second spot. First of all, what happened? And then what did you make of uh, the, the two of them? They both had thoughts on, on how that battle played out towards the end. Yeah, it was an interesting one because it was 
On the limit, for sure. I, I wouldn't say it was over the limit. You know, I, I really trust Bo Barfield's calls in race control, and I think he does a really good job on on making decisions for incident responsibility and whatnot. And there was no action taken from Renger's, Renger and Felipe Nasser's contact. The, 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 the cars touched twice um, while battling for second in the closing laps, and ultimately Renger got through. It... it I would say Renger was definitely aggressive, but he's an aggressive driver, and especially at Laguna, like you said, Ryan. He's been he, he's that way, especially around this track. So um, I think that they were uh, it was an aggressive move, like I said, but I don't think it was anything. I wouldn't say it was fair, but then I wouldn't say it's unfair either. Right. It's kind of in, in in between kind of situation, and like I said, I I. I I don't think what Renger did was wrong. I think he was just really on it. And um, we saw a lot of contact from a lot of different cars over the course of the race. Really, quite frankly, I was surprised to only see one yellow um, overall because um, GTD cars were getting into each other. We had a late race um, contact in LMP2 that decided the podium finishers there. So, um, yeah, it was really on the limit driving, um, especially at a track with a lot of tire degradation and and heated temp heated tempers as well in the closing stages yeah i think i agree with with that assessment there and it's worth noting this is not a track that it's easy to pass on and so it's going to take some aggression to get it done and i agree i I don't think it's necessarily unfair what renger did and i also don't blame felipe nasser for being upset i think he's 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 got every right to to be a bit grumpy about it and uh, he wouldn't be a competitor if if he wasn't. So in the end, I'm I'm happy about it because it was a great spectacle and it spiced up the end of the race as far as the overall podium was concerned. And uh, it hurts the Action Express cars losing that spot. They're the the closest pursuers in the championship, but it seems like they're still well positioned. They, they should have every ability to fight for the title the rest of the way. At least that's my read on it. But I will admit, John, I'm having a little bit of trouble figuring out what is a comfortable gap and what is it with this new point structure are you feeling that way too yeah i was just thinking that as you were talking about like you know points wise and so there's a hundred point gap between the the 10 car and the 31 now and the way you sort of look at it it's almost like one tenth of what we had it's 10 times larger than what we had last year so you sort of divide it by 10 and that means 10 points. So if anybody's confused by what the, the point structure is this year, you could kind of do that math if, if you're able to. So it's basically a 10-point margin right now of where it was compared to how last year was. But that doesn't factor in the qualifying um, points. So, you know, qualifying points would be instead of 35, it'd be 3.5, I guess. You know, <laughs> you can sort of look at it that way um, for, for poll. So um, 10 points is still... A decent amount, but you know things can still change. I think it, with two races to go with DPIs, um, I, I think if the the ten car basically finishes on, on the podium in the next two races, I think they'll be in good shape overall. I don't think they have to be super aggressive and going for wins, and they, and they know that too. You know, coming up at Long Beach is not a track particularly good for the Acura or right. the. Or chassis, so we expect the, the the Cadillacs to be very strong there, and potentially the Mazda as well. So, um, you know, like Ricky 
said in, in pre race, he was sort of saying we need to get the points and and the results when we can, and luckily we were able to pull it off. Let's switch away from DPI and go to LMP2. You mentioned some controversy late in the race, battling for the podium, and even the the car that ultimately won, PR1 Matheson, Ben Keating, and Mikkel Jensen, they they were involved, Ben in particular, with some contact early in his stint too. It was just that kind of race, wasn't it? Yeah, Ben dropped back to third at the start of the race. Don't exactly know why or how that actually happened. Um, It almost sounded like it was maybe an error or a mistake on his part, but um, he quickly regained that position, but then um, had run-ins, run-ins with two other cars on the track during his stint, uh, and it was quite some heavy contact. Um, both incidents were reviewed and no further action were, was taken, so um, Ben was in the clear, and um, from there, it was kind of clear sailing for the, the PR1 car, with um, once, especially once Mikkel got aboard. Um, Ryan DL was the only strongest challenger i would say and um, ryan had an unfortunate final lap where he had contact by another car ended up getting um, stuck in front of a a a sign and and lost actually dropped down to a fourth place finish and after being second on the final lap so real heartbreak there for aero motorsport after winning road america and then um looking to be en route to a second place finish in lmp2 but um going back to pr1 yeah this was their 25th win in imsa competition Third in a row at Laguna Seca, their home track. So a lot of good things going for that team there. Um, they're looking to possibly expand um, to uh, additional cars next year. So lots of momentum going in Bobby Oracle's uh, way uh, for that operation. That's great to hear. GTLM, not a ton of drama there. It came down to the two Corvettes, WeatherTech Racing's uh, Porsche never quite factored in to this one but i do believe this would have been a meaningful win for the four car nick tandy in particular getting his first official win with corvette and uh and tommy milner his co-driver as well and it's coming on a track that corvette hasn't tasted success at for quite some time yeah first win since 2014 believe it or not for corvette at laguna um we kind of expected this was probably a going to be the, the the year that they could get the win considering <laughs> sure. the competition and we sort of saw at the beginning of the weekend the, the weather tech porsche wasn't there an outright pace um probably over an entire stint again going down the tires and, and everything there but um yeah breakthrough win for sure i was really happy for nick he was a bit emotional post-race even and getting this first points win for corvette racing um the pairing the, the well um, it was actually, I think, Alexander Sims and Tommy Milner that won the Daytona qualifying race um, in in January, and then Nick and Tommy won the the race at Detroit, but that didn't pay points. So this was very much like you said, Ryan, the first win for this pairing, first win for the four car in in full points since the Sebring um, July race uh, in 2020. So it's been a long time coming um, after a lot of bad luck for this 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 team, this crew on the side of the, the Corvette racing team. So um, Nick almost threw it away there in the end and his outlap um, in, in, for his final stop um, drove out of the, the pits and um, locked up the brakes and drove a little in the grass. And it was a bit of a hairy moment there, but he was able to bring it, bring the car back under control and it back into the pit exit lane to not get a penalty there. Um, and he still managed to keep the, 
to get the lead uh, out ahead of Antonio Garcia. So, um, yeah, it was exciting stuff. The two Corvettes were running pretty close together again, and um, I think it, just, it was just a good day for the four crew all along. It was, but unfortunately not uh, not a ton of high drama there. GTD, though, was a little bit different. Uh, the, the competition was close. We had several incidents as well at various points and championship implications in some of the results as well with Faf coming away with a second consecutive win their third of the season Lawrence Vanthor and Zachary Robichon turning into a potent pairing as I think many of us anticipated at the start of the season yeah they've moved into second in the championship now um, trailing the Turner um, BMW only by I think 27 points which again that's like 2.7 points in, right. in the in the in the conversion factor or whatever you want to call it um, Turner was really strong in the early running Robbie Foley led basically from the get-go after getting around Trent Hidman um, but ultimately uh, the slow pit stop uh, in their um, uh, uh, I think final final round of pit stops with about an hour to go, um, and then Bill Oberlin sort of just dropped back in during his stint. He ultimately finished fourth in the race. Um, that sort of shook things up in terms of the points. That's what gave Faf the the advantage there to get um, to claw some the way in. And then we also had the other factor with the heart of racing, Aston Martin. This was a real odd situation for them because. The number 23 car, um, there was two of them that debuted. That The second car debuted over the weekend, ultimately didn't play a factor at all after the first lap accident with Ian James. But um, the number 23 car, the season-long championship contending entry of Ross Gunn and Roman DeAngelis, um, Ross actually set the quickest time in Q2 in the two-stage qualifying format. Roman qualified the car in third, so it was set to start the race in third, but Ross unfortunately got out of the car before the end of the session in Q2, and that's a no-no in the regulations where basically you lose all of your times in Q2 or in your qualifying session if you get out of the car before the checkered flag. So they had to start from the back of the field, and they not only lost the points from qualifying, um, they they got last place starting points for qualifying um but roman had to dig his way from 13th on the grid and then got spun around by the number 66 uh gradient racing actor of till bechtelsheimer um bechtelsheimer got a penalty for that um they ultimately ended up finishing fifth and i, I spoke to ross after the race and you could tell he was really dejected knowing that this could have been their weekend they had the pace all race long i think they were one of the quickest cars in the race just they didn't have track position at all and it all came down to a technicality that was probably just a little bit overlooked when qualifying and it just goes to show you how one little thing can turn into a massive um issue and now they're even further behind in the championship than they were um going into the weekend so um unfortunate for them um, they're going to need a couple really good races to try to get back in, into the fight. But, um, yeah, it just goes to show you how tight GTD is now uh, in terms of the championship battle. Well, all in all, as you can tell, it was an interesting weekend out at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. And there will be at least three more editions of this race. Uh, big piece of news, I think, over the weekend, John, that IMSA and the track have reached a three-year extension on their uh, contract to continue to hold IMSA sanctioned racing at the facility through 2024. Was this ever really in doubt? Was this a formality or, or somewhere in between? I think it was more or less a formality because it was orig- originally already announced that they were be- they'd be coming back 
um, to Laguna in 2022 in the the revised date or going back to where, where it was supposed to be mm-hmm. in late April for this year. Um, so just getting everything finalized and, and worked out in terms of the contract, it's a unique situation at this facility because the track is actually owned by the county of Monterey and um, there's a new organization behind the operation of this of the facility so there's a lot of different elements and pieces together so i think it's really good news to see this contract extended um it does give a lot of you know solidifies things for the next three years um there and uh, it's always uh, good going out to the west coast and going to monterey i know fans it's it's a it's a it's a tough race in terms of getting a, a, a turnout for fans but i think you know, if you look at other alternatives in California, I don't think the drivers would be as happy going to a place like Sonoma, for instance. I think they would really prefer Laguna Seca, and I think this IMSA has definitely made the right decision by extending their deal with the, with the track. One thing that could help, and we haven't seen what the IndyCar schedule is going to be, but uh, I don't believe IndyCar is planning on running at Laguna in the spring next year, and as yeah. it stands this year... As we've seen in the past, actually, the, the IndyCar and, and IMSA uh, weekends butt up against each other. So IMSA was there this weekend, and IndyCar's headed back out there next weekend. And I think that's suboptimal from a fan turnout perspective. If you space it out a little bit better, I think there's a good chance that a couple or that uh, the majority of those race fans would want two bites of the apple. But when you put them that close together, it, it makes it a, a challenging prospect. So hopefully that's something that can be... Uh, dealt with moving forward, and and I think we'll see an IndyCar schedule here in the next couple of weeks. So uh, that that should help provide a bit of clarity, at least uh, with with the fan turnout at, at Laguna on the IMSA side. Uh, we should also mention there was a lot of racing going on out there in Monterey with Michelin Pilot Challenge and Lamborghini Super Trofeo all racing. This past weekend, we also had a bunch going on at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with the Porsche Carrera Cup North America, as well as the Porsche Sprint uh, Sprint Challenge North America as part of the Porsche Sports Car Together Festival that was held for the first time at IMS over the weekend. And uh, some other sports car racing that went on was at the Nürburgring on the Nordschleife with the next round of the NLS season, which I think is most notable, John, because it saw... The delayed race debut of the BMW M4 GT3, and by all accounts, it seems like BMW was quite pleased with the way that the car ran in its first official race outing. Yeah, I guess it was a a pretty good run um, based on the reports there. Um, It did run out of fuel, I think, on the final lap, but um, they said that sort of was part of the plan, I guess. But um, nonetheless, it was more or less just a test race to get things under their their belt. Um, we have to remember that um, they were planning to run the NLS four round back in July. I think late June or early July um, until they had a accident in practice that curtailed that. So it took a little time to get this long-awaited um, race debut under their belts. There's some more racing planned. Um, I've heard some rumblings that we might see this car in the Creventec 24 hours of uh, Sebring um, in November. So that'll be really interesting to see if, if that materializes. And um, I think there's some other VLN races, NLS races that are probably planned as well, and potentially other Creventec rounds as well. So, um, yeah, good to see that ahead of its uh, 2022 debut. I've heard the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I've heard the same thing about the Sebring race. So 
I, I think it might be headed in that direction. That would be awesome to see and a good tune-up for that car ahead of uh, a full campaign with multiple customers next year. Let's shift to the news of the week, and we'll stay in the GT3 world. I think a lot has been made about the ACO's uh, decision to start to fully embrace GT3 here in the near future within uh, the the WEC as well as uh, European Le Mans series. And the the question that that seemed unanswered to me was, what does Stefan Rattel think about this? And we got some clarity thanks to a story from Dan Lloyd. What did we learn about uh, the the man behind GT3 and and his opinions on the changing landscape globally of GT racing? Yeah, it was a really interesting story that Dan had up with on the on the website um, talking to Stefan during the Nurburgring um, GT World Challenge uh, Europe weekend a couple weeks ago, and Stefan basically said, "quote The world is big enough um, uh, for GT3 cars to be included in the 24 Hours of Le Mans and WEC," and he doesn't really see it as a threat um, for his series, especially with the pro-am direction that the ACO is taking it. Um, if it was a pro class, I think it might be. A little more threatening in terms of the top class entries you see in Intercontinental GT Challenge and um, um, Fanatec GT World Challenge Europe, but um, I, I think growing the grid in in, in pro am is something that Stefan's been trying to do himself lately um, in in uh, Europe, especially with all am lineups and and whatnot. So this could actually be a benefit to both sides if if we see more teams sort of opting for those kind of lineups similar to what we see with gt daytona in the the weather tech championship right now for this year obviously we'll have gtd pro in 2022 which will change things a little bit but that's at least in, in addition to the existing gtd gtd architecture we have in imsa so um, i think it's an all good situation i i, I don't think Stefan is too worried about it. There's been some rumors that SRO BOP could be used by the ACO um, as a licensing agreement um, for the the BOP at Le Mans and in the WEC once the GT3 era begins in 2024. So we'll have to keep our eyes on that. But um, certainly um, doesn't seem to be really the end of the world from, from Stefan's view. And if I'm remembering this right, did he not also have some comments about having GT2 ready to go should there be some unforeseen implications on the cost of GT3 racing due to these changes? Yes, and he's been saying that quite some for quite some time. I remember when GT2 was announced like two or three years ago at, at Spa, that was kind of the whole idea that this is our you know backup plan in case the costs dramatically rise in GT3. So I don't think he's had, he, he hasn't really had a change of tone in terms of that. Um, we know GT2 is still quite small in terms of its footprint, but that's how GT4 was when it started as well. So um, it'll be interesting to see how it evolves in the coming years. But I think if the ACO keeps it under a pro-am formula, it probably won't grow out of control. But the one thing you do have to look at is IMSA. You know, will manufacturers start building special cars for GTD Pro in IMSA? I don't think so. It's not looking to be that way. Um, we have the exception of the Corvette, obviously, for the first two seasons with a modified version of the G- of this GTLM car. Um, but that that's really an, uh, an out-of-the-box situation that's more of a grandfathering clause under a national homologation. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think – I don't think – 
we have anything to worry about in terms of GT3 in, in terms of a cost escalation right now, or at least that's the way I'm, I'm seeing it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye on that, of course, as it develops. And since you mentioned the Corvette situation, let's uh, skip to that news story that I thought was quite interesting that uh, we found out that in that exhibition race that IMSA ran for the GTLM cars at Detroit, uh, Corvette used that as a chance to, to test some, some of their ABS systems they're working on as part of that uh, process of converting the GTE spec Corvette C8R to something approximating to GT3 spec next year. Yeah, uh, a real interesting revelation. Um, it was revealed by Antonio Garcia in the, the pre-event Zoom conference. Um, he sort of let it out of the bag that they had an ABS system on the cars at Detroit. And I did some further investigating after that and got confirmed from Laura Wontrop-Klauser, the GM's uh, sports car racing program manager, that they indeed had that system in place with IMSA's blessing. Um, obviously, uh, the Corvettes were racing against themselves. They were in an exhibition class. They did not score points. The WeatherTech Porsche was not there. So it was a great opportunity for them to test that out uh, to compare to their sim data um, with ABS. And, um, yeah, I was just surprised it sort of didn't get didn't come out until now. Mm-hmm. Usually we, we do a, quite a bit of digging, and um, they were sort of keeping this one close to their, 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 their chest, I guess, until uh, recently. But um, that sort of shows you where this is all headed. You know, Corvette still has not officially announced they're going to be in GTD Pro next year, but it's all the signals are clear that they will be. Um, it's more of a formality now on, on getting everything announced. Staying within the GM camp, uh, news out of Cadillac that they are planning a spring 2022 rollout of the new LMDH car. That would be a start testing ahead of uh, LMDH coming into uh, global competition in 2023. What do we learn from Laura Wontrop-Klauser about uh, what Cadillac's plans are with this uh, new LMDH project? Yeah, she said the target is spring 2022, mm. and I think um, I could tell in her voice that there was a little concern about that, and it largely comes down to parts supply and, and the supply chain right now in the industry, um, much like we're seeing in a lot of different areas of the world um, due to COVID and, and other reasons, there's shortages of parts uh, all over the place, and um, she said it just takes one part on this on a new brand new car to make, delay it it could be up for months you know if there's a if there's some big backlog or delay so it's their hope to get the car on track in spring of next year we know Porsche and Acura are going to be on track most likely before the end of this year if not even a little sooner maybe in the next month or so there's been some rumors of 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 the, of the Acura actually maybe beating Porsche out of the box but we'll have to wait and see on that um Nonetheless, on, on the Cadillac front, um, we also learned that the rendering that was released um, without a wing uh, is actually not depictive of what the final product will be with this Cadillac LMDH. I asked Laura about that. She said, no, the regulations in LMDH state that they do have to have a rear wing, which I found interesting because I wasn't 100% sure on that because we haven't had, we haven't seen a full-on set of the LMDH um, technical regulations yet um, that have been finalized by the ACO and FIA because it's still a more or less a draft version. So um, work in progress as they're finalizing different areas. So um, it was interesting to see that. So that the so that basically means LMH cars like the Peugeot, 
can run without a rear wing because of the way the rules are written there for that platform of cars, but not, not the case for LMDH. Um, also, Laura talked about customer cars. Um, she sort of veered away from that possibility for 23. Um, she said that the focus is really going to be on its partner teams with Chip Ganassi and Action Express. Um, I asked her about the Hendrick Motorsports factor because there's been a lot of talk of Hendrick potentially moving in um, with a car or two. Uh, potentially in the WeatherTech Championship, she wouldn't confirm or deny anything, but didn't rule out seeing another team potentially being added to the fray. So that could give some credence to the rumors of Hendrick looking in to possibly a full-time LMDH program, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see on that. All right. Uh, and staying with LMDH talk and uh, another manufacturer, it's been in the news is BMW, which has confirmed what we have suspected for a long time, that Delara will be their partner constructor on their new LMDH program. Yeah, so much like GM um, with the Cadillac brand having the partnership with Delara, BMW will also have a partnership. And it's interesting because both of these manufacturers will have dedicated staff from Delara, so um, they won't be intermingling with each other as the cars are being developed. So um, Delara, is putting the, Delara is putting a big effort on this um, and keeping these programs separate. Um, they'll obviously share the same base chassis, but other components that Delara may provide or uh, offer in terms of um, development um, will not be shared between the two manufacturers. That'll be rivals on the track in the WeatherTech Championship at least. Okay. More on all of those stories and a whole lot more can be found up at sportscar365.com. We also did get a question from Pass on the Outside. That was about Rebel Rock Racing and whether we would see them back. And actually, shortly after you posted that question, we got the press release that indeed Rebel Rock Racing will be making its return to the IMSA Michelin Pilot Challenge starting at VIR. So that is really good news. It's been a little while, of course, since we've seen them going back to Watkins Glen. Uh, had an accident there, but uh, great news that they should be back, and we'll be seeing a bit more of that team over the next uh, couple of months to close out the season. Thanks so much for writing in with that question, Pass on the Outside. We also did get a question from He Who Knows, who says, I've heard that Porsche's new LMDH drivers are going to be out of a full-time IMSA drive next year, but what about part-time roles? He says, I mean, it would be nice for them to keep their racecraft fresh. What do you know? I, I don't know about part-time. All I know is that... Um the drivers that are set to be signed with Porsche are going not are not going to be driving full time. So, um, good question. We'll we'll try to get an answer. But silly season is really in high gear right now in terms of the driver market and the the general atmosphere in the paddock at Laguna Seca over the weekend was tense in my just just feeling it. You could feel it in the air. There were a lot of driver managers on site. Um, there were um, drivers not wanting to talk at times. Um, it, it was just a, a little bit of a, a strange feeling, and you know it's that time of year, and it's just sort of, I think, even more pressures on because everybody's looking towards 23 as well, not just 2022. So um, sorry we can't get an answer for you with this, but um, stay tuned. Hopefully we'll get some more answers in the coming weeks out of curiosity 
how does the atmosphere compare to like 2016 in the build-up to DPI coming online? Is there any comparison, or has this just ratcheted up to a whole new level with the amount of manufacturers involved and in, in the big money programs that are announced or expected to be announced? Yeah, this is a completely new level. I don't remember being witnessing something like this in the IMSA series um, ever, uh, you know, in since the unification of the merger from, from you know, between Grand Dam mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. ALMS, um, you know, I, I would say ALMS back in in 20, 2006, 2007, you know, that was some really heightened times with factory participation and whatnot. But what we're about to see, not just in IMSA but WEC as well, I think that's what adds this extra dynamic because we have some IMSA drivers right now that are look like they may be signing with manufacturers for WEC programs in 23, not actually in IMSA. So that adds a whole other dynamic to things as well. And, um, you know, I, I've witnessed the, the buildup of the WEC in the, in the glory era of LMP1 hybrid, but, um, that was just with three manufacturers mainly, well only. And, and what we see now are, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, you know, 10 by potentially by 2024. And, it it sort of creates a huge opportunity in terms of the driver market. So um, everybody is really on the edge right now and trying to sort out where they'll be and what offers are good and what what direction they should be going in and and how the team structures will be made up. And like Laura from from Cadillac wouldn't even confirm to me that Ganassi is going to run the WEC program, and yet. We know that Action Express isn't, but she said, well, that hasn't been announced yet. I'm like, well, but the team's already said this. She says, yeah, but Cadillac hasn't formally announced the allocation of their their teams for their series yet. So it's even little things like that that sort of like puts you like makes you think, wow, okay, there's a lot of formalities and there's a lot of procedural things that that manufacturers and teams have to get through, um, especially getting into such a high pressure arena that we're about to enter with all of this manufacturer involvement um, starting in 2023. It's a fun time to be involved in sports car racing, and I think for the first time this new era feels almost imminent now when you're talking about the potential of some of these LMDH cars getting on track this year to do some testing, and we've already seen LMH racing uh, in the WEC and at Le Mans, and you're, I'm just it's starting to feel like it's right around the corner. When, when all this was announced initially, it felt so far away. And uh, something about this conversation here today, John, has me starting to realize we're getting close. And this has every reason. We've said it so many times, but this could really be a, a special time in the history of this sport that, frankly, in my lifetime, in our lifetimes, I don't, I don't know if it has a precedent. Yeah, um, I can't think of a time, really, that had this much full-time manufacturer involvement. I look back in the 1999, 24 hours of Lama, I think there were six or seven different manufacturers mm-hmm. there between GT1s and, and LMP, I think it was LL, they were called LMP1 cars. Or nine, 900 may have been the year after, but okay. um, there were a lot of manufacturers at that race, but it was just one race. Yeah. It wasn't a full-on series, and here we have two series two between IMSA and WEC. So, um, yeah, for sure, uh, this is really heading into a glory era for sports car racing. And in the meantime, there's plenty of racing to watch in the here and now. It should be a busy weekend with the European Le Mans Series racing at Spa. We've got SRO America and its uh, uh, its uh, various championships under that umbrella. There'll be 
out at Watkins Glen this weekend. DTM will be in the Netherlands at Assen Racing there. So tons of racing to look forward to this weekend. Lots of coverage, of course, at sportscar365.com. And we'll be here to talk all about it once again next week on Double Stint. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'd love a question or a comment from you using either the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter or by leaving a comment in the comment section of this week's podcast. And, of course, a rating and a review on iTunes would be welcome as well. And we look forward to talking to you next week with the next edition of Double Stint. We'll be right back.